Welcome to Confronting the Madness. My name is Mark Corthius, host of Confronting the Madness. In episode 13, I had the great pleasure of reconnecting with an old friend, lead singer Ewan Curry of the Sheepdogs. The Sheepdogs, if you don't know, are a Canadian rock and roll band and the very first unsigned band to make the cover of the Rolling Stone magazine. Since then, they have gone on to win four Juno Awards along with a number of multi-platinum albums. For the record, I have no idea what a multi-platinum album means. The Sheepdogs have performed at some of the largest music festivals in the entire world, including South by Southwest, Coachella, Bonnaroo, and Lollapalooza. Oh, and last but not least, the Grey Cup Final. Please forgive you and I in advance for some of the inside baseball conversation we indulged in. It was the very first conversation we've had in literally 20 years. You and the sheepdog, or dogs, have had quite the ride so far and have stayed humble, kind, and are still in love with making music for making music's sake. And I think there's great beauty in that. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And now I bring to you the one, the only, Ewan Curry. Da 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 da. Curry, uh, lead singer of Sheepdogs, welcome to Confronting the Madness. It's been 20 years, but uh, it's it's great to see you again. Yeah, man. I get it. It literally has almost been 20 years. Yeah, and before I get into um, telling the audience about about who you are and who the band is, if they if they don't know already, um, I, I vividly remember because you and I grew up playing basketball and soccer or football together. And I remember being at a host party in is like grade eleven or something. And you and I, you know, we didn't hang out that that closely, but you were there. And I just thought of you as a, a jock, just like me. And I, I vividly remember this: is there was an electric guitar there, and you picked up the electric guitar and you started like playing it like like an expert would play a guitar. And I'm looking, I'm looking at this. I'm like what the fuck is he doing? You know, like obviously not knowing your dad and you have a musical background, but anyways, I, I think I said to you at that time, you know what, Ewan, you might have something there. And I think that's what maybe propelled you to where you're at today. Yeah. I wouldn't be uh, where I'm at if it wasn't for that moment. I'm sure. <laughs> I don't, I have no memory of that. That's funny. No, no, because I just sat there kind of in awe of, because I love music. The only thing I ever played was, and I loved it two things, the ukulele in grade seven, yeah. and the recorder. And I remember the recorder. The only thing I remember is it's six, five, six, three, two, three, one, two, three, one, three, five, six, five, six, five, three, two, three. It might've been a beauty and the beast song or something, but oh, wow. anyways, I digress. Um, so you're the lead singer of the sheepdogs 
uh, a yeah. Canadian rock and roll band formed in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I'd like to talk about Saskatchewan with you as well. Um, you were the first unsigned band to make the cover of the Rolling Stone and have gone on to a career featuring multi-platinum album sales and, and four Juno Awards, which um, congratulate four Juno Awards is just, that's, a, really? that's an unbelievable accomplishment. Um, you had a quote, and I think it's, it's an app quote about your, your music style, pure, simple, good time music. And um, I can attest to that. And you have a new album. Is it dropped yet or is it dropping soon? It's out. Yeah, it's, it's out. out. No simple thing. And the single is keep on loving you. So I highly recommend folks check it out because um, it's, it's music that's going to jive for the summer. It's music that's going to jive for, um, as Jason Kenny says, the best summer ever. So um, be prepared. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about, about you in particular and, you know, I remember being in Saskatoon, pretty insulated growing up. And I, I still remember this, actually, you telling me at 13, 14 years old that you were um, from Australia originally. Yeah. And it, even that, I was like, well, this, this guy's different, you know, because, I, you know, all I know are white people from Saskatoon, you know. Sure. Yeah. So, so maybe talk about... Um, your upbringing, uh, your parents, uh, what they did, and, and then when you transitioned to Canada and what, what that was all like for you. Sure. Well, I was born in Sydney, Australia. And, uh, and my, then when I – like my dad is from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, which is – Oh, like, he is. You know, yeah, yeah, he's a Saskatchewan guy. What my mom is Australia? Well, my mom is, uh, is Australian. She was born in Tasmania. And her mother was Canadian, and basically her mom and dad met in the Second World War because my dad, hit my grandfather on her side was training pilots in, in Alberta, of all places. My grandma's from Leduc, just outside Edmonton there. Yeah. And, uh, and then they went back, you know, after the war, my Canadian grandmother ended up raising family in, in uh, Australia. Anyway, when my mom, I feel like I'm just way in the weeds already here, but when my mom was... Uh, you know, in her twenties, she came to Canada for like a, a trip with her friend and ended up staying and going to the university of Alberta and oh. met my dad there. They go to Australia eventually in the eighties, me and my brother are born. And then in the nineties, when I was 10, my dad got a, he was accepted to the, like a, the, the get a doctorate of music at UBC, move the family back across to Vancouver for one year then eventually in 1996, we end up in the great city of Saskatoon. And uh, that's kind of like, you know, I was 11 years old and I lived from 11 till 20, well, how old was it? 29, I guess, in Saskatoon. And um, so did your, dad, did your dad take on a professorship at the University of Saskatchewan? Or yeah, he was for a while. He was, I think he was always just like a sessional lecturer. He was a composer, also a performer. Um, but yeah, he was in academia a bit. He's kind of a weird guy. He doesn't, he doesn't really like academia. Um, yeah. I think just from a personal standpoint, but yeah. uh, my mom worked at the university of Saskatchewan as well. She was the librarian that ran the education library and some of the other libraries as well. Okay. And, um, this is, this is really in the weeds question, but 
what part of Saskatoon did you move to when you moved there? Where, where, uh, so College Park. You live in College uh, Park. Yeah, yeah. I lived. Uh, I lived. <clears throat> Jay Bradshaw. I get real inside here. Was my backdoor neighbor. Was the neighbor over the alleyway from me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, like uh, I, I lived right by our the high school that we went to, like a seven minute walk. Oh wow. Yeah, so I mean, you and I went to high school together. I went to College Park School. Um, so did I. For two weeks. Oh, for two for two weeks. And then <laughs> what, what what happened? Uh, they they sent me to the nerd class in uh, Greystone there. Oh, it's you smart. went to Actel. You went to. I did. Oh, oh I yeah. see. Oh, it's yeah. all coming together. They yeah. sent, they sent me the opposite direction. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you've shown them now. You're uh, now you've, you've done well for yourself. You've proven you you have some intellect, I guess. Yeah, well, it's taken thirty years to get there, but um, <laughs> um, yeah. So you know, you and I, I guess, more than I even know, have led quite quite similar paths. Obviously, you've had experience internationally, but when was it that you thought? And you were you were a great athlete, by the way, and um, that's how I thought of you. But how into music were you? Um, given your dad's expertise, like at an early age, was that something that really resonated with you, or is it something that just through osmosis? Kind of both. I mean, like you start off like playing, like I did piano lessons, which you know, which is like it's really good for you to play the piano, but it's really brutal, like it, practicing and 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 like all that stuff. It's really hard. It's really and it's not fun. Like when you start on music, it's really discouraging because it's not like you just want to rock. But then yeah. you're learning like scales and you're learning like old pieces of, you know, like Tchaikovsky and stuff like that. And it's just like, this isn't what I want to be doing. Right. So I was, I love music. I always listened to tons of music growing up. I was a weird kid in high school because I was like listening to Zeppelin and the Beatles. And, right. and like everybody was like, oh man, Eve Six or whatever, you know. Yeah. Crap. Nirvana. Um, yeah. Well, Nirvana's a, Probably a little earlier, but um, but I think sports just was always like my thing. At least when I knew you, because it was like I don't know. I, like I have memories of us doing battle in uh, like grade nine phys ed class. Uh, just whatever sport we were playing, like it was just like always like there's a bunch of like pretty like A type guys in that class, always trying to like outdo each other. Yeah. It's pretty good memories. That's that's good stuff, you know. I I love sports and music kind of equally. Like even when I was uh, you know, playing football and I got pretty serious in football for a while, like I was also in like the musicals and and in the arts. So it yeah. never never occurred to me that you had to do one or the other, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a very unique, um, unique characteristic traits to have both the artistic brain and the athletic brain and um again i always thought of you as just just the athlete until you know that one that one party i'm like oh wow this guy's this guy's got some la this guy's got some layers to him and i was too intellectually superficial to really appreciate that at the time but as time went by and um you know you guys became successful with the sheepdogs I, you know i i often reflected upon um, you know, our relationship in some way. And, you know, I remember I have to share this story, even though it's really inside baseball and a lot of people um, won't care, but um, it, you and I are in grade 11 football together. 
and there's a coach by the name of Tom Sargent who is just, and then to this day, as old school as you can get. And there were two other coaches, one of whom's become one of my best friends, Jason Sauls, and another who's a very, very good man, uh, Ryan David, who both live in Edmonton now. And Ryan David kept on, my, my name's Mark Corthius, and it's Dutch, and so it's hard to pronounce. And Ryan David would go, hey, Corchis, get in there. Corchis, get in there. And I was too shy or nervous to say anything because I, I had no idea. I just started playing football halfway through the season. And and you were you were right beside me, and um, you stuck up for me, and you said, hey, Ryan, just so you know, his name's pronounced Corthius. And I looked over at you, and I was like, you know, that's like that was a commendable thing that you did. <laughs> And then maybe you could say what happened five seconds later um, or well, on the story, if you don't mind. I mean, I remember, I mean, these things always get distorted in memory, yeah. but I, I kind of remember a different way. I remember it was like, I just remember him being like, Corchus, what's your name, Corchus? <laughs> and you're like, oh, it's actually Corthius. Get in there, Corchus. <laughs> yeah. Just like, yeah, just like how dare you tell me I said your name wrong? Like he, he was old school too, right? Yes. Yes. I think that's actually uh, how it went, but it was, he had disdain for the fact that he had to correct my name. That's um, right. He was Ryan, old school too. Brian David, you, you're a good man. And uh, I played against him in, in my first year when I played Huskies, he was playing for the golden bears actually. Oh, oh he was, you played against him. Uh, yeah. I mean, I wasn't playing, but he was, he was he was kind of infamous amongst the the Huskies, that's for sure. Oh yeah, was he was he a tra- was he a traitor? Not for being a traitor. I think he had a bit of a reputation as a, a little bit of extracurricular activity oh. after the play, <laughs> as it were. Yeah. So when you were so you played, um, how many years did you play with Huskies football for? Three. The you last year, my last year was the first year we started the band, and by that point. My uh, my brain was no longer in football mode. I was just like thinking about guitar and singing all the time. Right. And so when it came to the band, at what point? Because I mean, it's interesting how you were into music, but you weren't like you never said to yourself at the age fifteen, "I'm going to be a, a music rock star," or did or did you have that in your mind at all? Did no, you- man. Like you know, it, it it's. It's it's a weird thing because it's like you remember when you're a kid, um, singing is like terrifying. Right. It's like it's so embarrassing to like to sing. Like it just there's something about it where I was always like embarrassed and like I think part of it is like you know we're a bit of a macho like yeah. Uh, yeah. thing happening with sports and stuff like that and to just like sing like it's so embarrassing. But like I kind of knew that I could sing. Like I knew I had a pretty good voice and I could mimic like my favorite singers and stuff. And so I think like musicals were, were kind of like a way that I could do that. And, and it was like a safe place. Cause like all the people that were in musicals are like, I mean, it was a lot of, a lot of girls and, you know, a lot of like more sensitive kind of dudes. And, and it wasn't a lot of like, you know, get in there, courteous type of stuff, you know, <laughs> it was, it was good for me. And, uh, and so I think I was just kind of figuring that out and then like, you know, building up that confidence that like, you know, you know what, like I could not only can I sing, but I can also like stand tall on a stage and sing and people are kind of like, 
the same way that maybe they look at you when you like make a big play in, in, on the field. They yeah. look at you and go, wow, that sounds really great. So it took a while to kind of get there. Yeah. So that's interesting. Like you had an archetype in your mind of uh, a jock can, can't be artistic because it's not masculine. But the irony of that for me, and I think for a lot of even who you would consider alpha males at the time or even now is like the most um, alpha male thing you can do is get on a stage and be vulnerable, whether it's with singing or public speaking. And if you're good at it, I mean, it's, it's, it's like getting a, a 90 yard touchdown times 10 in my, in my, in my opinion, because, you know, that is, as you say, that's, that's kind of revealing your soul to people that you, you, you have no idea how they're going to respond to it. Yeah. It's just tough. Cause it's, it feels a little bit embarrassing to like try something out that you might fail at. And, and yeah, I don't know. It's just weird. I, I really remember being a kid and just feeling like singing was the most embarrassing thing you could do. You know? Wow. So, wow. Yeah. Like, and and I, I still, to this day, I, cause I love singing and it is the most embarrassing thing that I can do because it's, I just have a horrible voice. And unfortunately my nine year old daughter, she, she loves singing and she sounds exactly like me. And my wife, Erin, who you know, she, yeah, was, sure. she, she was actually in singing lessons. So she she thinks she has a better voice than uh, I think she actually does. She has a good voice. But um, anyways, so you're you're 15. You're, you're kind of trying to come to terms with the fact that you want to you want to put yourself out there in the, in the music world. And then, you know, how did the band start to take shape at that time or, or, or when did the band start to take shape? So really not till I was 19. When I was 19, I think, um, I was just in that kind of like a transition sort of period where I, I think I was kind of looking at my life and sort of feeling like, you know, I was, I was like playing football. I wasn't really getting to play a lot. Some kind of circumstantial things were going on there that weren't, not working in my favor. I was basically like barely getting by in university classes because I just was not motivated at all. And uh, I think I just kind of felt like I needed to shake things up, do something different. It just felt like, you know, I went from high school onto this like world that not, I don't know. I was like, it, I, there was got to be more to life than what I was kind of doing. So I remember Ryan Gallon, who's our bass player and, you know, also went to our high school. He and I, like, literally, I think, like, basically, I had had a breakup. Ryan had got fired from his job. And we were kind of just, like, we had to do something. Like, we, we kind of had, like, a two-pronged plan where one was um, we wanted to do something new, a new challenge. So, like, start a band. But we also wanted to meet new people and kind of, like, get new experiences. Because we felt like we were sort of hanging with uh, the same folks all the time. And we kind of wanted to shake it up and like Saskatoon is very small and insular and it's comfortable and, and yeah. has good family vibes and stuff, but we wanted to just see more of the world out there. So we figured like we started hanging out with this third guy and he was already a friend, Sam. He went to high school on the other side of town and we just kind of started kind of just, I mean, we would like literally like rented instruments and just like, let's figure this thing out. And right. for like the first 30 days, we we practiced every single day. I mean, we were just terrible, but like <laughs> we, we just plowed ahead 
and kind of did every little step, you know, painfully and slowly. But it was like, I don't know, it was like this brave new frontier where, I mean, I can remember, it's so funny, I think back, like I remember my, my uncle was being sworn in as a judge. And I remember being at the ceremony and telling my dad that like, at some point I might be moving to Toronto. I mean, I was right, but it wasn't until like 12 years later, but right. I was just sort of like, we're pretty serious into this band thing. Meanwhile, you know, I don't think we had a paying gig yet, but. Right, right. But, but at least you had a, you had a, a goal that in your mind that you were, you were shooting towards. Um, yeah, absolutely. At that time. Um, and so when you were starting, did you, like, how did you map out your practicing? But then how do you map out, okay, we've refined our songs, we, we've refined our set. Where do we where do we go next from there to start to establish a presence? Um, is it in Saskatchewan that you first started like going around to uh, the local? What's literally like you just, I mean, you just sort of take the. It's like really steps is the best way to explain it. Like, you know, first you start playing, you try to get some songs together. You maybe like have your friends over in the basement where you rehearse and drink beers on a Friday night. Yeah. And, you know, are, do you have the courage to play your stupid songs for them? And then it's like, okay, maybe we'll sign up for like the open mic night or one of these battle of the bands that are secretly just a rip off <laughs> the bands playing in them. Uh, or, you know, and then you, then you, you play the open stage enough times and the guy that runs the bar is like, Hey, uh, my opener for this band canceled. Can you come down and do a quick set? And you're like, yeah, absolutely. And you're terrified. And then you maybe, you okay, Hey, you want to play? want a headline Wednesday night and it's a slow night, but we pay, you know, $200 to come open, you know, headline Wednesday night. And then maybe you start doing Thursdays and then you start doing weekends and then you start going, okay, let's take this on the road. You, you figure out how to book a tour. You like call bars and just be like, Hey, can I play there? And they're like, right, right. no, email this guy. And like, it's, it's right. just really, it's really sloppy. It was, all, like, it was all iterative in terms of, we, yeah, so, you know, we just figured it out. And I, I tell this to young bands all the time because they want to just get like a manager right up the right. gate. Yeah. And we learned everything the hard way. And it, man, it was good because it was like, it was just so valuable because it, I don't know, like we just kind of learned everything for ourselves. And it's so important. Like the experience is just so valuable. Yeah. And I find, um, and not to equate this, well, this podcast has some analogies in the sense that, um, you know, million, millions of listeners, millions of viewers. No, um, in the <laughs> sense that what I wanted to do, and, and maybe it's the same with you with sport where, you know, sport has structure, it has a hierarchy, and yeah. you have to work within a structure and hierarchy. And there's creative elements in it that you can um, perform that are meaningful, but it's all within this constrained culture and so when I started this podcast just a year ago, it was actually the first time in my life that I have ever done a creative pursuit that I was not beholden to a boss or a coach. And I never, I've, I've asked for a little bit of help here and there, but doing the editing process, uh, trying to promote it to a certain degree, um, it, it imbues, I think, much more meaning in the journey rather than, you know, trying to scale by paying somebody $10,000 to be your manager and promoter right off the hop. Would you, would you, 
Does that resonate with you? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, yeah, there's such a framework for athletics where it's like, you know, you play in this league, you play in this team, you're up to the next level. There's coaching. There's like, it's just very like laid out for you, but it, the artistic pursuits, I mean, unless you're like member of a symphony or like a dancer, right. it's so open-ended. Um, I mean, I, both m myself and our drummer, Sam, our dads are musicians. So we kind of knew the fickle nature of like the arts. Like I can tell you, my dad got actively kind of wanted to push me towards being like an engineer or something like that. Right. Right. Um, Cause he knew firsthand how difficult it was. But like you said, the intrinsic rewards are really strong. And like, I mean, the fact that like, I'm, I'm so fortunate in what I've been able to do. And like, I, like I literally make up songs and sing them for a living and wow. people buy my songs and come wow. to see me play. Like it's so bizarre to me, but it's incredible. Yeah, and it's, it's, it, it's bizarre, but it's also, you know, music is one of the most meaningful things for individuals in society. And, you know, I was, I was telling you offline, um, I was, I was listening to your, your solo album that you made and it's just, you know, it, it, it took me to a place of, you know, the prairies and going home and the song, the song stranger and, and going up to my, my cabin and family. And, um, there's some, there's some profound beauty in that, that, you know, you can simplify it in the way that you did, but you can also, I think, psychologically take it to a very, very deep level um, that without it, you know, we would be a lesser society. So anyway. Oh, yeah. oh, um, hugely. So you guys are starting to tour around um, some small clubs. And, okay, I, I want to get this right. It was 2011 um, that you met in Toronto and submitted a demo tape to Atlantic Records, and that resulted in you being one of 16 bands chosen to be part of the Rolling Stones' quote-unquote choose the cover competition. So maybe just talk about that, because I, I, I do vividly remember that, but maybe expand on that, because that was, I mean, that in and of itself, for you to elevate your status to um, – national international recognition is quite unique um but i don't know if there's any parallels to that at all yeah it's really weird i mean it was a kind of a unicorn type of situation yeah. i suppose it uh yeah i mean so we started the band in 2004 and uh you know like i said we kind of made our way up to the point where we were touring pretty regularly but like you know starting to build up a little bit of something like I think we maybe like drew 350 people in Winnipeg, like okay. something like that, which yeah. is like so minor, but like, but how, not your hometown. How, 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 how amped were you guys at that point? No, it, it was amazing. Cause if, you know, when you play in your hometown, there's always an element of like your friends and family coming yeah. out. And yeah, it's like, exactly. it's always like a supporting your, 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 your home team as opposed to just, you know, people coming for the music. But so that was like a nice step. But like, you know, we, we toured like a lot. We were going to the States a little bit, playing to like, you know, the bartender in, in Manhattan. Uh, we kind of learned that we had to stop going out West because it was like, no point. You just play these like mountain towns uh, that were, I mean, we got good reps, but it wasn't like furthering the career other than that. 
we realized that Toronto is where you got to go all the time because that's where the industry is. Mm -hmm. And so we would just, but like Saskatoon and Toronto, if you drive, if you get in your car and drive nonstop, it's going to take you 33 hours to get there. So it's it's a long, it's a long ass drive. But yeah, I think it was 2010 or 2011. We, we just kept going to Toronto and we, we ended up being around this guy, who we get we left uh, i think he let us crash his, his office because we were always like sleeping in the van and like couldn't afford anything yeah. and uh, he turned out to be like a music manager who manages many bands and, and managed us eventually but uh his name's joel carrier and, and he basically was like there was this industry-wide uh call for unsigned bands submit them for this rolling stone atlantic records competition uh and so we got thrown in the mix because he submitted us and yeah. And then it was like a 16 bands kind of March madness bracket, like knocking out down to eight, down to four, down to two. And then finally we won, but it was like uh, from, I don't know when the contest was announced, maybe February or something all the way till August. It was like a constant thing where we would be like just doing media all the time, trying to do things to ramp up voting uh, we'd go to Manhattan, New York, basically every weekend, then fly back to Canada and like race around like the country doing all kinds of other things. It was kind of insane because we went from being just a bunch of guys from Saskatoon driving around in a van right. to all of a sudden like staying in like a midtown Manhattan like hotel and like going into like the Rolling Stone office or like just basically flying around everywhere. It was very, uh, very quick, very fast. And kind of debilitating. It was really nuts. Yeah. I, was, I want to ask you about that. But did you think when you were – like, what did you think the likelihood was that you were going to be successful in that competition? Like, did you put it forward thinking, you know, we have no chance because all the other groups are, like, amazing? Or or were you guys kind of confident that because you had maybe a unique sound or something that – well, I, you know, I, <clears throat> I, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of modern music. Like I'm an old school guy, like yeah. I like old rock and roll, but uh, and old and soul music and country and stuff. But the uh, when I looked at all the other bands, I didn't think actually they were very good, mm. to be honest. But I know I'm not a very good judge of you know what's cool or popular. But I kind of had a sneaking suspicion we were going to win it because I can tell you when we the first gathering of all the artists was in new york and we they made the big announcement and then they're having a party where everyone was getting together and i remember uh we were the last artist to show up because everyone flew in but we drove down because we were like having to drive somewhere else right after like we were just i don't know we were constantly doing stuff that year and so i remember driving down from toronto we had to get we had an illegal trailer hitch in our van and we had to get like welded off or soldered off or whatever and then I drove like 150 kilometers an hour down through upstate New York, just cr- cranking the Almond Brothers because we like had to get to this party. <laughs> and we showed up super late. And I remember we rolled in right out. We parked the van right in front of this like street where you shouldn't have parked. We were like, fuck it. We'll just go and do it. Yeah. We're all wearing our like winter coats. Our hair is just like all a mess. And everyone was just like turned around and saw us. It was like the most dramatic entrance like possible. Like... Like everyone else is kind of like, you know, wearing their like wide brimmed brand new hat and right. 
posturing everything and then we just like roll out of the van looking like the real deal like wild men from saskatoon right and everyone was just like who are these guys and i just remember thinking like i think we're gonna win this (laughs) that's that's so saskatchewan like that's a pure and they probably they probably thought you know they they have all their expensive outfits and they're all prim and proper and then they probably thought you guys were putting on a a shtick of trying to be yeah. like the unkept, you know, country r- rural guys. But no, you're just the, you're just the prairie guys that are <laughs> are rolling. Yeah, it, it somehow just kind of worked. I think it just, it was like we were legit and they were kind of, there was a lot of posturing by the other people. You know, they were more from like big cities in America. We were the only Canadian guys too. So Yeah. And so I guess you think authenticity, authenticity was kind of a key feature of, of what made you successful in that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we won the thing for a couple of reasons. Like one, we were more of a real band than a lot of the other people were. We had been a band longer than I think every other artist that was on there. So we had more experience. We were more sort of like, we were super ready to like handle all of the challenges and, and stress tests and everything because we had done so much touring right. in Canada. And, uh, and then, I mean, obviously I think the Canadian factor helps because Canada just got like so on board, but it just made sense. It's Rolling Stone. Like we were the old school rock band right. kind of harking yeah. back to the old days, but yeah, it was a, it was a wild year, man. Like I didn't have a second to reflect on almost anything uh, sort of still reflecting to this day on it. I, I imagine. And so given this is a, a psychological mental health podcast, I have to ask, you know, you, you, you strike me as somebody who's always had a level head, but you know, that can always be uh, just a, a mask. But have you always been, you know, fairly grounded, level-headed, um, you know, through your your teens and into your 20s? Or have you ever struggled with any sort of anxieties or de- depression at all? Or has that not been something? I, I think I've been, I've been pretty level for the most part. I think I've had my share of anxiety. And I've had like times in my life where I've been depressed. Um, but I think, you know, I wouldn't say it's been debilitating or to like, you know, to the point where I wasn't able to sort of get through it. Um, I think I've been pretty lucky in that I'm a pretty confident guy. Yeah. Um, I'm a, definitely a sensitive guy. I think that helps with art, you know, your artistic pursuits because you have to be sensitive to things. Um, but I've always been kind of in the middle, like on a lot of things, like just, I think I've always just sort of straddled a lot of lines and been in a lot of worlds and that's been really good. Like I definitely can get a little hot headed at times. Um, but you know, I think as I get older too, that's really calmed down, but I, yeah, dealing with the stress of that year in particular was a real test of, uh, you know, I was 26 that year and it was just like it really tested everything I had. And when the year ended, I remember I played, I think the final show that year was the 23rd of December in Vancouver. And the next day I got in a plane and just flew to San Francisco and spent Christmas in San Francisco because I was so, I was kind of broken a little bit, just sort of flat worn out that I, yeah. I just sort of told my parents, I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to come a little later. I'm not going to be home for Christmas, but I just need a little time to unwind here. So you, and, uh, so you, cause I was asking kind of like pre fame and then, you know, rolling yeah. like that period in particular, 
like how do you how did you cope with you know your your ego the stress you know maybe imposter syndrome or your confidence guy so maybe that's not an issue you know all those factors that if i put myself in your shoes um given my um some of my maladaptive uh, coping mechanisms you know i could see my ego you know boom i could see myself getting into the you know the, the sex drugs and rock and roll I, I, I would have been married at the time so maybe just the drugs and rock and roll but did that ever enter into your or, orbit or was that something that you consciously um were aware of and, and, and tried to stay away from um i mean look the, the world the rock and roll world is very uh forgiving of when it comes to those elements i mean it's sort of assumed that they're part and parcel of the of the deal i mean i was i was a single man and i so you know that was some there's some wild times for sure yeah um yeah the ego does go a little crazy i mean i think the thing that kept me grounded in some ways was just that we had so much work to do all the time and i think we were really cognizant of the fact that you know just because we won some competition to be on the cover of a magazine it wasn't like i couldn't kick back and like live comfortably like right. we had a lot of work to do still yeah like we were so eager like look for all the people that were like hey so great you guys won this competition blah 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 there was like a whole bunch of people who were like who are these guys one hit wonder never heard of them gone to the you know here today gone tomorrow right and we were so desperate to to show everybody that we were going to be around for years and that we're not just some flashing fan we're like a real rock band so i was just really desperate to kind of like work hard and i i guess maybe it's because like i didn't get into being in a band because i wanted to be famous or right. like i mean i definitely probably on some level did it to impress women and and I mean, like, I do enjoy partying to certain extents, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, I, but like, I love music. I want to make records. I want to play shows. I want to travel. I want to be in this world. Uh, and so I think, I don't think I ever lost sight of that. Like hard work is part of, I think all of our, our work ethic. I know Ryan and I, especially like, maybe it's just, it's somehow like hardwired from my field Presbyterian, uh, thing or whatever like the you know dna or something but it's it's i don't know it's i think that's what kind of kept me going was just like this is a golden opportunity and i'm terrified that it could be gone tomorrow right right yeah because it's so impressive um like i'm talking to you today and i might as well be talking to you 20 years ago because i, I feel like you're that you have the same um fundamental ethic moral structure um and so you know it's probably in part your parents as well um, for sure yeah. that, that that imbued that in you and so so you went you win the the rolling stones cover album and then maybe maybe walk through the next several years and and how you, you you scaled because you know i think you know when i think about businesses and entrepreneurs you know, it's one thing to win the contest, as you said, you're on the cover, so you have a platform, but now you have to produce music that people like. And, and so maybe talk about how you went about doing that and um, some of the successes you had along the way, because I, I'm looking at, and again, I'm not a big music guy, but, you know, performing at South by Southwest, Coachella, 
Bonnaroo, Lollapalooza. It's like these are the most iconic music festivals in the world. You won four, you won four Juno Awards, um, which you know, if I won a Juno Award, um, you know what? I, you know, what? I'd, I'd be in, I'd be in Las Vegas right now. I, I'd probably live in Las Vegas, you know, like so. So, anyway, enough about my my ego. How I would I would dissolve under your success. Um, maybe yeah. Walk through like the, the 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 Rolling Stones cover, and then the subsequent years after that, and how that all unfolded for you. So we won the Rolling Stone competition in I think August of 2011. We played a bunch more shows, did a full tour of Canada that ended the 23rd of December. And then I took a short break, came in California. I came back to do New Year's Eve at Niagara Falls on TV. Wow. And then the next day, January 1st, we flew to Nashville and started making our next record. So it was like no time off. It was just basically bam, bam. And uh, it was kind of crazy because we were going to Nashville, we were making this record. Um, Patrick from the Black Keys was producing it. And uh, it was like, uh, I was like, oh, I, when, when was I supposed to write these songs? Like, I haven't had any time to like, uh, you know, I guess that was the other thing when I went to San Francisco for Christmas, I was like, I need to like figure out how, what the hell we're gonna, you know, what songs we're gonna do. Right, right. So that was pretty nerve wracking. Like it was like, you know, on a big stage here now like what are we going to do also like like i said the pressure of like proving that we belonged and we weren't just some like lucky band that won a competition I, we really felt that with this next record um, we had to like make sure that we did good uh, so that record i guess probably came out in the summertime or i don't know when it came out uh sorry was this learn and burn no, Learn and Burn was the one that we had out already, which is okay. still almost successful. But this was self-titled. It's called Sheepdogs. Okay. And so was, how did you get connected to the, the Black Keys to become your producer? How did, how did that I'm, work? I did a thing in New York called – it was called Petty Fest or maybe Stones Fest. I did both. But it's a thing where basically they have a band and they do all of these songs by one artist and different people get up and sing a song and – I was lucky to get to go and do it. And I, there was like all these famous people there, like way famous. And like, I remember chatting with Pat at that thing. And he's like, I should produce your next record. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, wow. But like, it was pretty wild. Like it was all like, you know, people from like hip cool bands and, and actors and actresses and SNL people and stuff. So it was pretty. Right. And then there's like me. I'm just like, and how, do you, sure how, how do you, um, cause I'm not, I guess I'd, for me, well, I won't even speak for me, but how do you, when you walk into that room and you're a confident guy, obviously, do you just look at these people like, you know, they're just, they're just people who happen to be hyper famous or are you in awe of, you know, actors or musicians at that time or the black keys or how do you, how do you internalize that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty aware of the fact that, like, there's all these famous, beautiful people, and then there's, like, me, and I'm like, oh, I'm just, like, this dude from Saskatoon with a beard, and, and <laughs> you know, no one and nobody knows who I am. Mm -hmm. I guess the one thing in my favor is that I got, you know, I was singing that night, so, like, I'm like, well, I belong here. If I can sing, I can show right. them I'm a good singer or whatever, so I get the confidence through that. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, like you said, imposter syndrome, you know, you definitely feel like I don't belong here. And to be honest, having been in a number of those situations around that time, like 2011, 2012, 2013 was definitely in sort of circumstances like that. I never really felt like, like, you know, when you're at a party and you're talking to somebody and they're like, not really listening, they're kind of looking around the room for somebody else to talk to. It's like, I got a sense, you know, not like everyone was like that, but just like, you know, I remember like when I moved to Toronto, a, a friend of mine from Saskatoon came out to visit me and, and we went out for some drinks and, and she met a bunch of my, my friends in Toronto and she was just, she's actually from Toronto originally herself, but she's like, I don't know how you moved to Toronto and somehow you're friends with all these like down to earth, like small town type mm-hmm. of guys. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I guess I did kind of like, like I was, I think I just always gravitated to people that were just like, like I like interesting people, but like, I also like, like nice people. Like I don't, I want to hang out with people with common interests and stuff. And, and I really d- despise the kind of like friendships just for like furthering your own uh, success or like having famous friends and things like that. And in, in fact, in some ways it's probably pissed off people I've worked with because they're like, well, don't you know so-and-so and couldn't you get so-and-so to do right. tweet about this? And I'm just like, ah, I hate yeah. doing that shit. Yeah. It's like, can't you do a single with little Wayne and you can mix in, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeezy's not returning my calls. <laughs> I text Yeezy. Maybe he's doing. Oh, a- Yeezy's Kanye. Whoops, I got those. Like, Wheezy, sorry. Right, whatever. I think <laughs> the point was made. Yeezy, Wheezy, Jeezy. Um, Just revealing about- my lack of knowledge there. <laughs> so you're kind of skyrocketing at this point into the kind of upper echelons of. Uh, I don't know, international fame and a little bit. I mean, we're, I think sometimes people think we got bigger than we are, we are about it. You know, we, to be honest, our music, it, we, we do very well in Canada, but we always remained sort of more of a niche thing in, in America. Mm-hmm. We never quite broke through there. In fact, when our, that record that Pat Carney produced, it, it, it debuted at number one in Canada. We had two number one singles off of it. It did great. But in, in America, the label kind of just gave up on it. In fact, Pat Carney talked about it on the Joe Rogan podcast. It's kind of interesting. But, oh, he did? Um, is he, yeah. Was he the, was he the um, person in charge of the label and why he gave up on it? Or what did he talk about? No, he was the producer. He just talked about how the label just kind of let it fall flat. Like there was a great example of the label gave a note about the like, – the hi-hat needed to be down a decibel or something. Some like total like pissing on the post type of note. Right. It's, it's a long story, but you know, we do well, we do really well in Canada. We have a, a, a good following in the States and, and, and Europe has been on the rise for us too. But I mean, at that time we were, I think we were just like, we never stopped really is what I want to say. Like we all of 2011 and then 2012, it just kept rolling and rolling and then i don't know if it was really until 2013 that we finally kind of took the the foot off the gas because it was kind of like i said this the fear that we had uh was if we stop this is going away like we can't and i think that that drove the machine where we were just like keep going keep working keep working and you know the phrase burning the wick the candle at both ends you know, we're partying, we're playing shows, we're flying, 
I mean, it was, it was not uncommon for us to do three shows in a weekend in different parts of the country. Wow. And, you know, like you, you, so that's like playing late and flying early. And like, you know, I don't sleep well on an airplane. Like I'm a, I'm six foot three. I don't fit in the yeah a, a seat very well. Or, you know. you, brother. Yeah. And so 2014, uh, so what talk through the next three years and then I'd like to, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your solo, solo album and then sure. maybe we can talk about your, your new album and then what the future holds for you and, um, and the sheep well, dogs. So 20, I think 2013 is when we kind of like took it. I remember we were in Spain and we were all pretty frayed, uh, just really worn out emotionally getting a little worn out too. It had been kind of like two and a half years nonstop of touring and, and promoting and also just being around each other, which is really right. hard. Yeah. Um, I remember, I think the second last show of our tour in Spain, my, the, my guitar got knocked off the stand and the headstock stock broke off right before the, sh- the show. And our, our guitar tech just like came to me in tears telling me that. And I was like, all right, it's okay. And like, you could just like even our crew was breaking down right, like, right. like our tour manager never toured again after that tour and like <laughs> so it was like a lot of burn uh, yeah we were super burnt out and uh i remember we went home and i was living in saskatoon still i was renting an apartment downtown uh, like a just a small uh like bachelor and i like decided i was going to take this road trip of like as i was like i need some inspiration i need to do something different I'm going to get my car. I bought a car, uh, a 1997 Toyota Corolla. Mm-hmm. It's pretty awesome because I went to the dealership and the guy was like, knew who I was and was just like, oh boy. And then I bought the cheapest used car they had at the lot. <laughs> he was just so, he was so crushed because I wasn't home ever. So I was like, I'm not going to buy like a fancy car. Right. Yeah. And anyway, I decided I was going to take this like epic road trip in the South. I was going to drive down, just go everywhere. Cause like when you're on tour, you don't have time to go and do all the fun things. Like you're yeah. constantly, uh, you know, getting from A to B and then loading in and playing a, a show. And so I was like, I'm going to like find, you know, cool barbecue places and buy vintage, whatever. I was just going to like explore. Right. And I, I got two days into this drive. I was in Colorado and I was just like, eh, I'm not doing this anymore. And I just turned around the next day. I drove from, from uh, Denver to Saskatoon in one straight drive. Really? Which took about yeah, it was 17 hours. I just, I did it. I didn't even drink coffee. I just drove home fueled by like, what am I doing? Like, what was it? Was, was it a desire to return to music or was it just that this wasn't going to be a, uh, this wasn't the refresher you thought it was going to be? It was both. It was a bit of like, what, I'm distracting myself or I'm, I'm seeking something. I mean, look, basically, like, I had been on the road for two and a half years. I, why was I going back on the road? Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. I just needed to stay at home. Like I, sh- I wanted to like relax and put my feet up and I, but I didn't know how to do that. I think because yeah. I just was so used to the like fear of like You're addicted sleep. to the adrenaline of the hundred yeah. percent. And I got home and within like two days of getting home, I got sick. I had some kind of like, I don't know what, I can't remember exactly what it was. I could, it was like some like, physical ailment where I couldn't sit properly and I was like laying out and I went and talked to a doctor and he was like it's like I think it was like a stress related illness where my body just kind of broke down and I was sick for a week and I didn't leave my apartment 
And I think it was maybe like the body's way of saying, uh, you know, sit your ass down for a bit. Right, know. right, yeah. It was kind of nuts. So you, so, so you stayed put in Saskatoon, and how, how long were you there for? So, I mean, we got, I guess what happened, then we started kind of get. we were renting this weird, like, uh, it was like a hangar or like a storage kind of facility, but we were rehearsing in, it was a terrible place to rehearse, it was just all concrete and metal, right, it right. sounded like shit. Uh, we were rehearsing our new record there, and I told the guys in the band I was going to move to Toronto, because I was going there uh, all the time anyway. Uh, I had a lot of friends there, and it was just kind of, I knew, like, I actually went off on this trip where I, it was like a, I left Saskatoon for five weeks and I went to all the different cities and I was considering living in for, for the longest time I was trying to live in San Francisco, but it, it just never worked out. And, and it probably is for the best because I think San Francisco has really become something. It's just kind of like a, a tech town, right. homeless people and, and tech millionaires. So it's <laughs> right. the, the cult, the, the counterculture that made the city great is I think suffering. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, I chose Toronto and, and so I, I just, in 2014, I moved there and, uh, we sort of started up, uh, we made a new record. We, uh, we also, we had parted ways with a member in our band that we didn't, you know, that was pretty traumatizing, you know, to like, uh, separate from a member that was really tough. And uh, if you don't mind me asking, what was the re reason it just wasn't a good fit anymore or yeah there was a lot of interpersonal uh situation i mean without going too much into detail you know there were three guys who were really focused and and you know were concerned about you know making this thing run and there was one who was a little more focused on other things so it it just you know we weren't going to survive if we didn't make a, a change and then at that time I, I moved out to toronto and then we made a new record that maybe didn't do as well it was like a bit of a struggle and we started to feel the first kind of like, it wasn't by no means a, a, a failure or anything like that, but it, it, it was sort of like the first little signs of like maybe the radio wasn't as eager to play right. um, some of the songs. And, but we did a, and then the other thing that happened is that we, we the guy who we replaced the, uh, that member who left in the middle of that tour, when we were in the States, he quit the band and he just flew home. No. So we were stuck in uh, uh, in Memphis when he went home without a guitar player. And uh, we had to fly in a guy who ended up becoming our guitar player to this day, a guy named Jimmy Boskill, who's a hell of a guitar player. And so it had a happy ending, but it was like another crazy. Wow. So how, how do you how do you source out a guitar player like that? Well, it just happened that our, our roadie knew this guy and uh, we, I mean, the guy who quit the band on the road, we could see the, you know, there were cracks there. Like he was not in a good place. And, you know, it's, I mean, this is a mental health discussion, right? Like the road is super, super hard. Yeah. Not everybody is cut out for the road. Like I know people have this like fantasy of like, yeah, of what the road is. And certainly it's a romantic place, you know, being in a new town every night and, and playing shows, but it's really, really taxing. I mean, if you just think about like missing your home, missing your comforts, being in a new town every day is, is very uh, strange. And, and just like constant destabilization is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, you, there's no like uh, 
there's not a lot of constant things in your life, you know, and you're playing different venues. Uh, maybe sometimes the shows aren't going great or the, you know, the crowd isn't, isn't good. Long drives in a van, especially for in the States where you're trying to save a few bucks, you know, don't always have the tour bus. Um, so I've seen the road, I've seen the road, uh, crush some people. It's, it's a pretty, it's a fickle mistress, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine that. So what are, what are some of the, if you could think of some of the top line highlights of, of your career so far, like if you could say three of them that were the most meaningful to you, what would those be? Cause I, I before that, you know what I just love more than anything? Cause I, there's something about Saskatchewan for me that I have such a deep appreciation for. And I think it, it creates a certain ethos in people that, go on to be extremely successful and stay grounded and, and, and humble. Um, so when you were, I don't know if you were selected to be like the tourism Saskatchewan uh, song for um, all those ads um, for um, feeling good. Um, is that, is that right? Yeah. And yeah. That was like, I just thought that was just the perfect song and the perfect ad for that. And so before you tell me your three, tell me how that, that came to be. Did Brad Wall call you up and say, uh, "We'll give we'll give you a hundred grand for uh for the for the feeling good song." I think it's an email usually, but uh, I mean it's a, it's as simple as a, like we want to use your song and here's what we'll pay you. It's usually that kind of thing. And then it's when that I think we got maybe I think we might have got paid twice for it. It wasn't a hundred grand though. I wish. <laughs> okay, I'm just yeah. Uh, that, you know, that song was pretty crazy because that song was, uh, it was the Blue Jays. Uh, the first year I moved to Toronto, or the second year I was in Toronto, it was the Blue Jays victory song. So oh, every awesome. time they yeah, every time they won, they'd play the song in the stadium. And I went to like 30 games that year, and I was just like, hit my theme music, baby. And they just started playing it, and it was like, just felt That was, that was incredible. Yeah, it was it was like, you know, there was a year that they had their best team. They made all the big moves and they were gunning for the World Series but didn't get there. That was uh, a David Price year. Yeah, Tulowitzki, Donaldson won MVP. Yeah. yeah. So I'd say that is one of my big things. You know, that it was also the it was the Leafs goal song and it was one of the Olympic or World Canada hockey songs. I know that because uh when I was in Switzerland last there was a guy I met who played for the Switzerland national team was like, yes, I know that song because we, uh, uh, we lost 12, nothing to Canada. So I heard it 12 times. <laughs> so he hates that song. So he hates it, but you know, pretty sweet. Uh, so I'd say, yeah, one would be the use of that song has been pretty good. Like it's been a very much like it got used in like a Spanish language beer commercials and like, yeah. uh, you know, like you said, tourism, Saskatchewan, uh, sports, it gets used in sports all the time. From commercialization and revenue generation perspective, is it how do, how does that work? Is it something whereby, you know, because I think the general population would assume, yeah, you guys are making really good money off of the commercialization, but how does that work? Like, you don't have to talk about numbers, but how does that work from a a, a business perspective? I mean, it's as simple as that. You get an offer or, you know, licensing. I mean, the money has actually gone way down it just even since we've been kind of getting those offers. Like the first years back in 2011, 2012, 
they were pretty good, especially, I mean, if you remember when the Black Keys really blew up, I mean, the Black Keys, I was listening to them in the university and they were like kind of an indie blues rock band. And then in 2010, they kind of blew up and they were like licensing everything. Like they were just yeah. everywhere and they made it really cool to license stuff. But then I think, then I think once the Black Keys started getting too expensive, they, they would be like, all right, well, let's get the Sheepdogs or, you know, Arctic Monkeys or whatever. It kind of sounds like the Black Keys. And then it was like, they just hire these guys, you know, that can knock off these songs for like, you know, 500 bucks. Like I've got friends here in Toronto that make ads for, you know, commercial uh, music and they just basically knock off whatever song that people can't mm -hmm. afford. So it's kind of dwindled up a bit, but it's pretty awesome. It's what they call mailbox money. You know, you don't, you've already done the work, so you just right. get the check. Yeah. But there's some, that, it's, it's sad to hear that because there's something like tourism Saskatchewan. It's not the same if, you know, Brad Wall goes on Upwork.ca and hires some musician for five hundred bucks because there's that, you know, there's there's that connection and that meaning because you're from Saskatchewan. Same with the Blue Jays, for that matter. You know, it's there's such a deeper deeper connection and meaning. So I'm kind of sad to hear that actually. Well, I mean, we still got those opportunities. Like you know that, uh, I mean, like just this week. Uh, like I have a project with my, so another thing that I'm really proud of is, is my brother and I have a side project called bros that we uh, put our first record out, in, I think 2016. And, uh, and the, our first single with bros is actually our most streamed song of any, more streamed than any sheepdog song, which is something that is so that strange. Right? Yeah. And it's the theme. It's called tell me, tell you me. can find it everywhere. And it's, uh, it's like the theme to CBC's Q uh common freestyled over it on cue one time which is pretty cool really uh and and just like uh just this week our new bros single was played on you know hockey night in canada and and, and so it, it's it's i still got a kick out of all those kind of usages it, it's uh it's kind of like you're part of the like uh or what do they call it not the pantheon or the ethos or whatever it is. You're just part of the like. Well, you're part of the culture of yeah of Canada, you know. Yeah. In a way that people probably don't even like. I didn't appreciate until you told me that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That's uh, but yeah, the the Bros Project is is another very satisfying thing because it. I mean, I like the way I like hearing you talk about you know music being uh, you know, rewarding and uh you know a deep level of meaning like bros is so cool because it's my brother who's in the sheepdogs as well but it's a chance for him to write music and for me and him to work together directly yeah, yeah. Uh, which has all kinds of family implications and you know obviously makes our parents very proud etc mm -hmm. but like uh it's also very rewarding because it lets us work on musical styles outside of the sheepdog style rock and roll because it's like i'm not i have a very diverse interest or uh, taste in music. Like you can see my records behind me here. Like I got all kinds of different records. And, you know, when I get success in music and, and make a bit of money, I want to put it all back into studio time and instruments. Because I want to keep, you know, fueling this fire because it's like, I want to, there's so much, I have so many uh, ideas creatively that I, I still want to do, you know, and I'm, I'm going to be 37 this year. And I feel like I got like 30 more years to go, you know. Wow. That's, um, that's quite. It's something. It speaks to your your pure love of music and how um, yeah. you'll, you 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 strike me as the kind of guy that would do it whether or not it was financially um, 
beneficial to you. I mean, obviously the absolutely the money the money doesn't hurt, but um, well, you know, you got a mortgage too, so that's yeah. <laughs> it keeps you in those buses. Keeps you. That's uh, right. Yeah. So yeah. so talk a little bit about your new record and um, you know the the future of the Sheepdogs and and what you know bros and and what are some other pursuits you, you you're considering um once we can get back to some sort of sense of normalcy um with COVID-19 yeah well we I mean the last Sheepdogs record was 2017 I think so it's been a while or maybe 2018 um we were supposed to make a record in Portland last year I was in Saskatoon for the Junos when the 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 world shut down basically uh and so we lost a lot of things. We lost our, we had a tour with the black keys that went away. Um, obviously we couldn't go to Portland and record a record anymore because the border was closed. So when we were, we, the next time we got together as a band was around Canada day. We did a, a live stream in Montreal that went out on, I think CBC. And uh, while we were there, we just made a rec. We just did six songs in a studio. It was kind of weird. Cause we were like staying in this hotel. Um, we we're the only people in this like small boutique hotel. And Montreal is all like locked down because like Quebec was obviously hit pretty hard by the yeah. pandemic. And so we'd like re record all day at a studio and then we go back to the hotel and we would just like, you know, drink beers and listen to like a Bluetooth speaker in somebody's room and shoot the shit. And it's cool because like, you know, you ran down some of the resume there, like the festivals and successes, blah, blah, blah. But like it was pretty dope because it brought us back down to like, kind of like being like 19 again where it's like you're just buds in a room listening to tunes right. drinking beers and it's actually something we do a lot on the road like when you think about a green room like that's where the band sits before and after this this you know the, it's like where they get ready to play and where they have a beer and yeah. relax it's it's literally like most of the time it's a pretty unimpressive room and it's like some beers on ice somebody's got the bluetooth speaker hooked up Sometimes we don't have the speaker, so they put their phone in the in the red cup to amplify it. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, passing a bottle of whiskey around or something. It's it's really like pretty humble, but it's like that's important because it's like our band is very much like a group of dudes who love rock music, who love playing together, and I think that's like important to have that spirit in the music because um, as much as a sheepdog is like you know trying to write catchy songs that get played on radio and stuff. Yeah. It's actually like, it's like a, I don't know. I don't want to say like a lifestyle, but you see people come to the show and it's like, you know, you'll see the long haired guys and, and even like, you know, you'll see like some 19 year old dudes that are trying to grow their first beard. And, and, <laughs> and they're like, you could tell that they've like been listening to their dad's record collection a little bit. And like, they, you know, they're into this this guitar thing more than they're into like you know the the hip hop world maybe and it's like I don't know like there's like a whole it's like kind of a way of life I guess yeah well, you, you've created a culture that's also for the younger generation that's made them then maybe go back in time to think and, and listen to some of the the people that you would you would have referenced as well yeah and appreciate that style of music. Um, in 2021, which I think is, is quite unique and, and, and beautiful in and of itself. Um, so the third thing, like I, I forgot, I didn't, didn't mention your, your performance at the uh, 101st grade cop. That must've been up there. Oh yeah. Your, your experiences. That's amazing. You know, and that, that was the best. Cause 
I'll give you the real short version of it. I, I met Tom Hanks, right. which was, he was there and he was the coolest dude ever. I like, come on, Tom Hanks. Um, the show was insane. Like playing, like, like I remember when the broadcast kicked in, I just was like Saskatchewan and the crowd went nuts. Like, <laughs> plus it was so cold. It was horrible to play, but it went fine. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then when uh, towards the end of the game, it was obvious that the riders were, were going to win because they were kind of crushing it. Ryan and I made our way down to the field. Basically, we were like, everyone was like just feeling the love that day because it was like the riders in Regina. Yeah. And uh, the security guards were like, come on, boys, go ahead. And they let us down. So when the, the, you know, when the game finally ended, we ran on the field with the team. And like, you know, they give out those championship hats. Yeah. Ryan and I are in the crowd. Like we're in the, the group of players with championship hats um, on the field. I'm sure some guys were like, who the hell are these guys? <laughs> you can fit it as the linebacker or one of the – do you have yeah. a do you have a picture of that? <clears throat> uh, maybe. I'll have to ask Ryan. He's got all that stuff. I've got the hat still, though. It was oh, like – it's so funny because it's like all the guys of the team with their shoulder pads and you know, with the hat on, and then I'm, I'm wearing like a buckskin jacket and like a scarf. And, you know, it was pretty great. So how do you how do you how do you reflect on um, Saskatchewan and what's your you know when you're writing music or even just thinking about your upbringing what because I, I reflect I reflect on Saskatchewan quite a bit in Saskatoon and and also I talk to a lot of people that leave Saskatchewan um, for for opportunities and then Alberta big time Saskatchewan hub right oh yeah they say born in Saskatchewan work in Alberta, retire in BC. But um, how do you, yep. do you think about Saskatchewan a lot? And, and do you think about how that shaped you and how it shapes your music? Or maybe you talk about that a little bit. I'm just interested. You know, I think it follows me in reputation more than I, I personally think about it. But I think that's because, like I said, I was born in Australia. I lived a year in Vancouver. I've always been kind of an outsider a little bit. Like right. I said, you know, that song about the stranger, you know, I always felt like a bit of a stranger and um, home has been a kind of tenuous place, but I mean, you know, if you want to talk about hometown, like there's no doubt that Saskatoon is my hometown. Cause it's like all my teens, you know, my twenties, uh, you know, just like, that's where I literally grew up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, you know, growing up, Joni Mitchell was a hero of mine, mm -hmm. you know, her hometown for better or worse is Saskatoon, but she's actually from somewhere else, Alberta, I think, but you know, it's just like, what's that? We claim her. Yeah, we claim her. Um, <clears throat> you know, that's my hometown. It just is. I do think about it. My parents both live there still. I get back there a few times a year. Um, you know, I don't know that I'll live there uh, anytime mm -hmm. soon. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm proud to be from there. And I like, you know, I like living here in Toronto. I think Toronto is a pretty special city. Um, I know people in Saskatoon or in the West sometimes have a like, oh, you yeah. know, center of the universe, Toronto, which, you know, understandably. But uh, it's like, I like, but I like being the guy from Saskatoon here in Toronto. Like, I think that's mm -hmm. cool. And I think people out here have no idea what Saskatoon is like, mm -hmm. you know, because it's amazing how many people in Ontario haven't ever left Ontario. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I remember my first... Um... So I got a scholarship to come to the U of A to play soccer. And I don't know anything about, you know, I don't think about anything, you know, I'm just so insulated. And the first road trip we go on, 
the coach says, you know, you got to dress up with black slacks and a dress shirt and um, black shoes. And so I do all that, but I put on white tube socks because I didn't know that you should have black socks. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm sitting there in this hallway and the captain of the team comes up who I'm intimidated and scared by. And he looks down at me and I don't know that it's not appropriate. He goes, what the hell is that? And I'm, I'm, I'm all of a sudden just anxious. I'm like, what? He's like, you're wearing white tube socks. Are you crazy? And I, I, and then he just kept on walking by and I didn't, I didn't get it still, you know, I didn't know. And yeah. so I went to go ask my friends, um, what's wrong with white tube socks? And then they told me I'm 18 years old and I still didn't know. I could, I had to get dressed up with. <laughs> Saskatoon is not exactly the sartorial uh, elite, you know, it's, it's, it's a casual, I mean, yeah. some of the some of the best folks around. I have to be careful when I talk about Saskatoon because I feel like you know people judge you harshly if you yes. have any kind of criticism of it. Yes. But I mean, come on, like you can talk about your family in a critical manner. You yeah, can talk about absolutely. your hometown. It's still love them. It's I a know. lot of wire rim, a lot of wire rim glasses and uh, and and sleeve tattoos and things like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know, I know, um, I know we're at time. I just, I have to, I have to share this story. Um, because you did mention a Toyota Corolla, and uh, I went to um, try out for this professional soccer team in Calgary in 2004. Me and my friend Jordan Gillespie and Mike Kennedy. Well, Mike Kennedy came along for the ride, and then they asked him if he wanted to try out, and he said, sure. Anyways, uh, we drove all the way Saskatoon to Calgary in his Toyota Corolla, Jordan's Toyota Corolla. And um, we do the tryout don't know what happens. It's the weekend. And then we drive back to Saskatoon. And of course, like good old Saskatchewan boys, we pick up an 18 pack of, I think it was Kokanee Gold at the time, if you remember. Oh, yeah. and, I sure uh, do. <laughs> and so Mike Kennedy's driving in the front. He's not drinking. But Jordan and I decide to sit in the back of the Corolla. And we have the 18 Kokanee Golds in the middle seat. And so we're drinking and talking and listening to music. And Mike's driving like 140 kilometers an hour from Calgary to Saskatoon. And all of a sudden, woo, woo, woo. We, we got pulled over by the cops. And we're like, oh, fuck. Here we go. And um, so Mike rolls down his window. And this was like the least smooth play I've ever heard in my life by somebody who's actually quite clever. Officer goes, how's it going, boys? And Mike looks at me, he's like, yeah, good, good. How are you doing? And we have a pillow now over top of the 18 Kokanee Gold. He goes, you boys been drinking? And uh, Mike goes, no, no, I haven't been drinking. And he looks back at us, and of course he knows we've been drinking. He goes, hey, you guys been drinking up back there at all? And, like, it's like, yeah, of course we've been drinking back there at all. So, anyways, they take out our 18 Kokanee Gold in the Toyota Corolla. And we go to the side of the highway and the cop makes us dump them all out. And then the best thing about the Saskatchewan RCMP is he goes, you know, boys, if I wasn't working, this is what I'd be drinking. We picked a good beer and I'm really sad to have to pour it out. <laughs> so, but no ticket? No, no, we got a 170. Oh, okay. But, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I think Jordan got it. So that's on him. I got a I got a quick story for you that I, I, I always remember too. Uh, I remember in grade nine gym class, uh, we were playing soccer, 
and you were the soccer guy. Mm-hmm. That was like your you were the man in soccer, and I was. We're we're kind of different athletes. I was more of a bruiser. You were more of a like uh, finesse guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I remember we were playing soccer. I never played soccer in my life. No skills, like all very much hand eye coordination, not foot. And I remember you were. I was trying to check you, and you were like busting all these moves. Like you were just like doing all the like all the like I don't know what the dribbling or whatever and I remember I just stood stock still and like somehow poked the ball away from you and it was only because I had no no ability but you but you were just like busting all these moves and like they just went right over my head and I just got the ball from you I remember always being like yes you you, you checked me you checked me that's like that's like my I got to get this on record too and then we'll 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 pause it there We've interspersed music and sport, and I think the most beautiful way ever. Um, so as you know, I joined the football team like halfway through the season. I had all this like leftover equipment. I had my soccer cleats. And yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, because you know sometimes you have a memory, and maybe this didn't even happen. But so we're having my first practice. I don't know what I'm doing. And the practice ends. And then the coach sergeant says, "Hey, Corchius, get over here!" And everybody else come over. And there's this like line of like thirty people on each side. It's like a tackling drill. And so Jeff Piercy, who like went on to be a fullback with the Winnipeg Blue Bomber, who was like the god oh, of yeah. the football, yeah, he's the man. Uh, he makes me do a one-on-one tackling drill with Jeff Piercy. Do you remember this at all? Uh, I not the specific incident, but I I also have a Jeff Piercy story. But yeah, okay, well, well let's let's <laughs> do two Jeff Piercy stories and then end because I wish you I wish you could validate this because nobody can ever. Anyways, my he was role, built like a he was built like a pro in high school. Yeah, he was like he was. A, a pro pro running back in high school, like an NFL running back. And so they line up, and it's like a 10-yard between me and Jeff. I don't know how to tackle. All I know how to do is, like, trip my brothers like I would do to put my leg out. And so this is my claim to fame for football is that he runs at me, and he hits me, and I kind of absorb the hit. But then I trip him, and he fumbles the football. And um, all of a sudden, you hear this, ooh. People start whispering, like, Jeff Pierce, he's never fumbled a football in practice in his entire life. And he was all pissed off at me. And now I'm like, I didn't want to play football. I didn't want to tackle this guy. And now I got the stud of the school pissed yeah. off at me because he fumbled. But um, I started to become a, a little bit of a legend in my own in my own way there. <laughs> well, he's – I mean, the guy was – he played pro football, for crying out loud. He was – I'm first, you know, I remember in grade 10, I got to go and play with the senior team at the end of the year. They'd always bring up a couple guys. Right, yeah, yeah. And we were we were down in Regina for the, the what was it called, the whatever, the provincial championship game. Uh, and we were practicing on the turf down there, and they were doing like a, a drill. And I, I remember Piercy came to block me, and I, I smashed him hell with the helmet, and he fell to the ground. And I was just like, oh, fuck. And and then I looked around, waiting for me to get in trouble. And Sarge was like, "Great tenor, great tenor, put down Jeff. Jeff, you gotta do better than that." And I was just like, "Holy shit, I can do this!" Like, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. I, but, 
We should say that the only reason we're, we're excited about these stories is because he was the best player of our of our generation. Our generation, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, and now he's like working at Merrill Lynch or something. And uh, and yeah, I ran. I took a flight with him randomly and then and chatted with him a few years ago. Did he was that? yeah, he lives in New York. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, you and it was an absolute treat to talk to you. And thanks, Mark. I just want to say, um, I'm just incredibly. Proud, uh, proud's probably a weak word to use, but uh, every time I see you guys and the success that you've had, um, it fills me with with joy and happiness that um, such humble and, and down to earth people can also be successful in an industry full of superficial and um, oftentimes not that nice people. So keep it up and um, um, let's keep in touch. All right, buddy. Take care. Bye.